you please me as we read Matthew 27, verses 33 to to 54? I'll give you just a minute to look that up. Matthew 27, 33 to 54. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it, and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said... I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened. And said, truly, this was the Son of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Sheila. Well, good morning, Reliance. It's good to see you. Um, Yeah, we finished up with Romans finally last week. And my intent... Our intent this next three weeks is just to ponder some things. Today we want to ponder in light of next Sunday, the resurrection. This week we're going to ponder the the death of Christ. And then the week after Resurrection Sunday, the ascension of Christ. This is the gospel. That Christ came to die for our sins. He rose on the third day. And he sits with full authority at the right hand of the Father. 
There's something in this passage that's familiar for us, and I know of some of you who have been with us for a while know that we went through Matthew's, Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. I'm not double dipping. Um, there is a, there's a phrase here in this crucifixion which has caused many to wonder and ponder. After a lifetime of ministry or service following obedient the will of the Father, after being rejected, despised, and mocked, hanging upon the cross, Christ's final words before he dies. And they go as, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All I'd like to do this morning is ask you, would you ponder this with me? Sometimes Resurrection Sunday comes up on, so quickly on us that we remember, oh yeah, it's got things to do next Sunday. One of the reasons why we do Good Friday service and why we've called our members to always be faithful, if possible, to be there is because it sets the tone of our hearts for the joy of the resurrection. And this, this morning, what I'd like to do together corporately is just consider together what in the world does this mean? I found that anyone who was willing to ponder these words have found to be um, encouraged, strangely. Um, Jesus knew exactly why he came. There was no confusion. Matthew twenty eighteen through 19, as he's going up to Jerusalem from Jericho, he turns to the disciples and he goes, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be scourged, and to crucify him. There was no confusion for what Jesus himself anticipated what was going to happen when he arrived at the temple. What should shock the reader is that when he actually endures the consequences of the will of the Father, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When you read the words, they're not aimed at what you and I would aim them at or charge them against. (laughs) Christ could have, after being abandoned by his disciples, frustration turned to disciple or even to Peter why have you forsaken me except for we know and remember with Peter was Peter after being questioned three times I do not know the man Christ had every right to turn his frustration or anger or whatever this is towards Peter He could have turned it towards the religious leaders who were very familiar that the prophecies were about to be fulfilled in the Messiah and that Christ has given convincing proof that he indeed is the Messiah. He could have turned to the religious leaders who were supposed to be supporting and helping and aiding him. Yet they were the ones in Matthew 26, 66 that said he deserves death. And we're not left questioning in verse 46 who Christ is talking to. I would have probably turned my attention to the crowds. I mean, 
The crowds are the people that him, whom he has served, who he has taught, who he has healed. And they came with him on Palm Sunday to Jerusalem. Matthew records that the event was so ecstatic or so electrifying that the city literally shook with excitement. A week later, they're the ones who say, crucify him. And they kept saying it all the more. It's not to them that Jesus charges, my God, my God. Or he doesn't say to the crowds, why have you forsaken me? After he has served them. He doesn't turn his finger to the, the justice system under Pontius Pilate. Even Pilate knew, Matthew 27, 23, what wrong or what evil has he done? He had no reason to give him the judgment of being crucified. Jesus had every right to look at the justice system and say, why have you not vindicated me? Pontius Pilate, he releases Barabbas from them, for them. Verse 27, 26, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. There's a fundamental breakdown. If you read the last two chapters up to Christ's crucifixion, whether it be the crowns, the disciples, the governing authorities, or even the civil authorities, the soldiers who actually take and crucify him, they use the opportunity to mock and humiliate him. So when you read Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, why have you forsaken? We know whom he's talking to. You and I, we would have pointed the finger, I think, and everyone else. One thing I find striking is the efforts that Matthew has gone to show us the, the complete breakdown of loyalty, love for justice, is how silent Christ is throughout the whole journey of it. When he's brought to before the religious leaders and they strip him down, or whenever they start accusing him by false testimonies, look at Matthew 26, 63. He remains silent. He says nothing. And when he's brought before the governors, Matthew 27, verse 12, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. Jesus waits. Throughout the whole day, to upon the cross, and he chooses his words carefully. That in his final hour, he writes, Matthew writes for us, verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus speaks. And Matthew, he tries to stress the significance. He's been silent this whole time. I'm asking you, would you just. Resurrection Sunday is coming up. Would you just ponder these words with me? I think I know how hopeful they can be. Jesus cried out. This term is the only time that's used in the entire New Testament. It's loaded with this idea of emotional struggle. And to capitalize on that the emotional struggle, Matthew doubles down. Jesus 
emotionally bound up, spoke with a loud voice. You know, I had a professor that once would say to me, you want to know what a man believes, be near him during his death. If that's true, then the words which Matthew chooses to echo as Christ's last words should shock the reader. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words have troubled us. Many of us. What does Christ mean? What was, what was he actually thinking? Is it true? Did the Father, is the Father forsaking him? Does the God, God the Father, actually respond to his plea, prayer? I ponder him too long. I find myself even thinking deeper thoughts that cause me struggle. Compared to Christ, I am significantly inferior. That if, if, if John the Baptist says I'm unfit to even untie his sandals, and God the Father is unwilling to answer this plea, will he answer mine? These are severe questions. And I know my obedience has not been reflective of the obedience of Christ. For Christ has done it perfectly, eternally. And me being a sinner, in my hour of need, will he show for me. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, so let's be fair. If this cry of Christ was original, the reader would be left unaware and unable to know exactly what Christ was saying. But God's, God's sovereign and God predetermined before the foundations of the world that Christ come die. And the prayer in which Jesus chooses to wait silently to speak and declare as his last words is not original. It's not the first time they come across the scriptures. In fact, Jesus himself, even by his appearing and by his teaching to the disciples, said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill And he sees himself as the one who is fulfilling everything that has come before him. That in his last word, before his death, he chooses to reveal to the reader or to the audience Psalm 22. And so I want to do this morning is just ask the simple question, what is Christ calling the reader to consider in these last final words? Will God, and you know the answer, right? Resurrection Sunday is coming next week. But the question is, is will God answer the prayers of his righteous one? And it doesn't look like it right now, does it? And so as you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Psalm 22. When you read Matthew, you recognize the emotional position of everyone. Disciples are fearful. The religious leaders are envious. 
Pontius Pilate uh, has a fear of the crowds. The, the, the soldiers mock Christ, thinking him to be littled. Throughout all Matthew's presentation of the Passion Week or leading up to the cross, we have very little perception to how Christ is feeling. And part of me wonders, is that way Matthew uses or Christ chooses to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in this messianic psalm, written 700 years prior to Christ's crucifixion, you will recognize what takes place in Christ as he atones for our sins. And he starts out with the initial plea. Read with me. All I want us to do is ponder, what in the world does Jesus mean? Why does he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because one day, you're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and you're going to hope that he hears. Like, I don't get it. How somebody could read Psalm 22 and say Christ was not predetermined. Because this psalm is loaded with what he accomplishes. And so he uses his last words, say, go home, read Psalm 22. That's what we're going to do. My God, it's the opening line. You can recognize where he's quote where this is coming from. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God. I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. As we go through this week, you'll remember like, like Christ anticipated what was going to come. He knew what was going to take place and he knew it was hard. In fact, it was even in the Garden of Gethsemane we see at least three recordings of his prayer. Matthew 26, 39. And these prayers are like, please, if it's possible. And he went a little beyond his disciples and fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. After the first prayer, you remember, he goes to the disciples and they're asleep. Gently rebukes them. He goes back to pray in Matthew 26, 42. And he went again, away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink, drink it, your will be done. He goes back to check on the disciples and once again they're asleep. You know, we pray with anticipation that God hear and respond. Jesus a third time left them again and he went away and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. The psalmist reminds God, I've prayed. I've, I've cried out. I've spoken. You know the position of my heart. But in contrast to my speaking, you do not speak. You are contrasted to what I am actually doing. You ever have the, uh, a conversation on the phone and then after a while you recognize, oh, did the other person hang up? 
Did the other person hang up and you go, are you still there? This is where the psalmist is at. Are you there? And it's still silent. So what do you do in the moment when you have offered up prayer and no response? He remembers who God is in verses 3 through 5. His initial response goes as such in Psalms 22 verse 3. Yet you are holy. And you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Like, my answer to prayer doesn't mean you don't care. Because I had a history. That Israel as a nation knows that they have They have enthroned God as their God because he's not like the other gods of the world who are like rocks or trees and they do not speak and do not hear. He's wholly different. And he has a history of answering God's prayers or answering the the prayers of his people, excuse me. So in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out, just as I have And were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. So so why is Matthew recording Christ's final words as, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's inviting us to understand the disposition of where Christ is at. I've pleaded. Speaking and you're not answering. But I know who you are. It's rooted in this struggle. Because what I see is what I, it feels like it contradicts who you are. But I know who you are, for you've always answered the prayers of your people. Look at verse 6. It continues on with this, with this additional plea. I've always been there. But I am a worm. And not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Yeah, we, we don't typically compare ourselves to worms. Why? What do we do with worms? We put them on hooks. And we fish for fish with them. It is interesting. You, those of you who are fishermen, have you ever felt guilty that you have pierced the side of a worm? No. Why? Because it's worthless. It's a means to an end. The psalmist says, I, I'm, I'm worthless. I'm not a man. Nobody even considers me valuable. A reproach and a man despised by the people. It echoes this other prophecy of Scripture in Isaiah 53. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 7, Psalm 22. All who see me, they, they sneer at me. This is what he sees. They separate with the, the lip. They wag the head saying... Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. Because he delights in him. 
Can I just remind you of the reading? What we read just before we came to Psalm 22. You can see how loaded Psalm 22 is, is, is woven in into the, the very passion narrative of Christ upon the cross. Matthew 27, 39 through 43. And those passing by were hurling abuses at him, wagging their heads and saying, you, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and then we will believe in him. And then they quote Psalms 22. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Why does Jesus choose to say with his final words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Go read Psalm 22. This is what I see. And his additional plea, I'm a worm, I'm despising. No one thinks me valuable. And in their mockery, Like we do with worms, we put them on hooks. Verse 9, you have this this, this, uh, desire um, from Christ to show his confidence in still yet the Lord. Look at verse 9. Yet it's you. You are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when my, upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Like, it's so hard to pray when in the situation what you see is trying to tear down what you can open. And here in the psalmist says, well, just like nation of Israel stands and has enthroned you because of your, your, your ability to answer their prayers, you're the one who brought me into this world. You have fed me. You have sustained me. You have taken care of me. Surely this is yet another opportunity to trust in you. There is this battle within that's going on. What I love about Psalms 22 is we get a window into how Christ is enduring what he's enduring for our salvation. But he is persistent. Look at verse 11. Some of these things should be very familiar to us. Be not far from me. For trouble is near, for there is none to help. The idea is like, God, if you're near, then I'm all right. You can actually work through the situation with me. Like, you have the means. Just as the psalmist would say in 23, 
4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. That's all I need. But this is what I see. This is what Christ, the psalmist, puts before us. Verse 12. But many bulls have surrounded me. Some strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. Some of us may not be scared of bulls because we go to the grocery store and they're dead, right? <laughs> Going on the farm, like, like a bull, <laughs> my uncle would say, don't turn your back on it. They're unreasonable. They wait. And when they charge, they come with such force. They're powerful, they're brutish, they're senseless, they're dangerous. (laughs) They've surrounded me. Verse 13. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. The depiction here is, he's, he's equating his enemies to animals. They're fierce, they're forced, they're... They're ready. They're like a lion with their mouths held firm upon my flesh. All they must do is, it's over. That's when I stop praying. This is just what it is. What you will recognize in the psalm is a man or someone who has astounding faith in, in God. Look at verse 14. I'm emotionally and physically worn out. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. One of the things that I have learned over the years, like physical challenges, that, that can be hard. Emotional conflict is like four times as hard it's physical. And he's both emotionally and physically done. If you don't show up, verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings, cleaves to my, my jaws. And this is, this is striking. Look at verse 15. And you... Lay me in the dust of death. Who's the you? It's not the enemies. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You're actually participating in this. You're putting me into the grave. I need your help. See, like, this is how it works for me. If you're not going to answer my prayers the way that I want it, then you're disqualified. And if I find out that you're making my life purposely difficult, you're the one that's making it difficult, what are you going to do? You remember Jesus uh, is talking with the disciples and he just lost a whole bunch of followers. Hard, hard teaching. He turns to the disciples, he says, are you going to leave too? Peter goes, to whom else shall I go? Psalms 22 is showing you someone whom God is even participating in, making his life difficult. And I want you to recognize his response. Verse 16. 
to it. Reminded of, uh, again, Isaiah 53, I was pleased to crush him. We sang it this morning. Father is participating in this. Does that mean that Christ then says, well, the relationship that we've eternally had between you and me is over? Look at how he responds. He continues with his prayer. For dogs have surrounded me and a band of evildoers has encompassed me. These are not your household pets. They're nipping at him. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They crazy. They have pierced my hands and my feet. 700 years. How did he know? Why does Christ wait for his final words? He's been two chapters silent. Like you read the Gospel of Matthew, who speaks? Jesus. When it comes to the passion narrative, he waits, he waits, he's silent, he's silent. In the final words, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Go home and read Psalm 22. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They, they look, they stare at me. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing. They cast lots. You can remember this uh, even in Matthew 27 in the reading this morning. Uh, verse 20, chapter 27, verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among themselves by casting lots. And the sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Watch. So that's when I would stop praying, right? So when somebody, like, is casting lots for your garments, the point is, he's naked. He's lost, like, if you think about Christ and the hours leading up to the cross, who has he lost? His disciples have abandoned him. The crowds have rejected him. The religious leaders are envious and wanted to eliminate him. The justice system has found unfruitful what actually has become the means for his death. The, the civil authorities mock him. And if it, anything else could be worse, they're like, well, let's deal with his clothes. Like, that's when my prayer is gone. Look at verse 19. But, crazy. Come on. He still prays. You, Lord, be not far off. Something happens in this this section of his unrelenting prayer. It doesn't show up in verse 21. It's hard to translate. And some of your readings may be awkward. But he goes throughout the plea again. I'm waiting. You, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver me, deliver my soul from the sword. My only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. He's he's turning back his enemies into 
animals, from the horns of the wild oxen, and then you have this, you answered me. It's like in the midst of his unrelenting prayer, he's interrupted. Uh, The net translation, I think, does a good job. Verse 21, rescue me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. Why is Jesus quoting Psalm 22? I mean, from everybody's observation, God has forsaken him. And the God which Christ entrusts himself to does answer prayers. From this moment on, from the rest of the psalm, you're going to see something so significant that the psalm records. Whatever this answered prayer is, is so significant that not only all of Israel will rejoice, but all the nations around the world will rejoice, and including the generations yet to come. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Verse 22. Something happens. Does God hear the prayer of his only begotten son? Yes. Yes, he does. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All descendants of Israel. For he has, look at this. He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Why does Christ quote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he wants, if you understand the gospel of Matthew, he wants his readers to recognize he's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all things predetermined in the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of it. And it's his last effort, last word of evangelism. Come and see who I am. And when God does answer his prayer, it just takes a little bit longer. Three days later, he gets up. It's interesting, like, when we pray, we don't want God to, we want God to answer our prayers our way. And nor do we see the situations that we go through in life as like God's hand being involved. And so we don't like to get into trouble, hard situations. Here we have an individual who lives by faith. Romans 1.17 The righteous man will live by faith even in opposition to what he sees. So he invites the nation of Israel. Verse 24 For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to help cried to him for help he heard From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Here's the promise. The prayer is so significant that only the nation of Israel will be benefited by it, but all the nations among the world, the afflicted will eat. 
be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. When the world hears that there is a God who can answer the prayers and even raise those from the dead, all the world will will enjoy responding to that God who has such power. Verse 27. So all the ends of the earth will be remembered and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship All those who go, this is crazy. Psalm 22 is loaded with the gospel. 700 years before even the arrival of Christ. Coincidence? No. Right? Why is Christ quoting this? He wants you to see it. I'm not a mistake. Predetermined. I knew exactly why I came. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who even go down to the dust will bow before him. Well, how do dead men bow and worship? We have that resurrection. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive, God answers the prayer of his beloved one. And praise God, he does. Because if we have learned anything... Going through the letter of Romans, who are you and I now in light of the gospel? Heirs of Christ. Does God answer your prayers? If he answers the beloved's prayer, yes. And what do we learn as Christians? Well, he's not going to answer it a lot of the times the way that we want it. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is disqualified. Like the son, we trust that he has a better way. For we know the hope set before us, resurrection. Not just for the Jew, but then also for the Gentile. Verse 30. And prosperity will serve him, this one. It will be told of the Lord. Here we are, right? So you want to know if you're in the Bible, here you are, verse 30. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. You have heard the good news. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. And what will they say? He has done it. Why does Matthew carefully select the last words of Christ? He wants you to entrust yourself to the predetermined, eternal, messianic Savior of the world. And it looks like God has forsaken him. But the Son has entrusted himself into the Father. And when the Father answers his prayer, in three days, the whole world will rejoice at it. Our convictional response. I want you there on Friday. Christ did feel something. Right? When he was on the cross, he felt like you lose friends and it's hard. Christ saw his disciples abandoned him. 
He was tortured, humiliated, and mocked. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. This is an emotional situation. And we should not just jump to Sunday and rejoice, right? We rejoice in the fact that he endured it, entrusting himself to the Father in spite of all of its difficulty so that we might rejoice on Sunday in the resurrection, the hope of our salvation. Psalm 22, 30 through 31 says this. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. We know the gospel. We know why Christ came. We are in We are amazed at his faithfulness, even in his darkest hour. And he has told us to go with the gospel. And we must speak it. God can raise the dead. And he will. For those who trust themselves. Just as Jesus said in John chapter 5.24. Truly, truly, I say to you. He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. The promise is Christ will return and the kingdom will be his and he will resurrect all those who have entrusted themselves to him. And that announcement needs to be declared, not just next week. It's just heightened a little bit next week, but faithfully and recordly. Tell it to your children. There's a God who answers the prayer even of those who are going into the grave. And that is our hope. And we long for the day in which we can enjoy the the fruits of his faith and enjoy the kingdom in which he will establish forever. So with that, I pray that your hearts and my heart can appreciate in spite of all that Christ endure that he remain entrusting himself to the Father. Let's pray. Lord, we saw the first comfort, even in the reading this morning. In light of the faith of your one and only begotten Son, the centurion, when he saw all that took place, said, surely this was the Son of God. And as that first message of response was given long ago, you have been gracious to this world to allow opportunity for every generation to not only hear it, but to respond to it. Lord, we are thankful that Christ endured the cross, bore our wrath, and did it entrusting himself to you. Lord, I pray that as followers of Christ, whatever situation you may have us go through, may we consider the faithfulness of Christ for ourselves and trusting ourselves to you who answers the prayers of, of his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.